This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In today's episode of Technical Human, we're bringing you an interview with Dr. John C. Williams. Dr. John C. Williams is a professor at the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University in the UK. Among the many areas of his research, Dr. Williams is an expert on the ethics of war and the challenges presented by changing patterns and technologies of violence and the issue of democratic authority over warfare. His work looks at key technologies, including drones and emergent autonomous weapon systems, and considers the ethics of meaningful human control as AI increasingly becomes part of what it means to wage war. Hi, John. Hi, Deb. So, John, I think we want to start off by understanding the key issues at hand when talking about the ethics of autonomous weapons, our topic today. What are autonomous weapons and why do they bring up so many ethical questions in the context of war? What What is and what isn't an autonomous weapon seems like it should be a really easy question to answer, but it's actually it's actually one of the areas where a lot of debate takes place still and where some of the ethical issues start to crop up. So the most common definition is is one that the, the US military developed, and that's the idea that an autonomous weapon is one that can identify, select, and engage targets without further human involvement. So essentially, you can turn it on, set it to, to scan an area, it'll pick up potential targets, assess them, make a judgment about what should and shouldn't happen, and you know, open fire as necessary. Some states have tried to set the bar quite high, much higher than that. That's quite a low-level bar to meet. And The UK government, for instance, used to have a definition which required an autonomous weapon system to be self-aware, even, you know, to have situational awareness at least the equal of a human being, which is a kind of crazy high bar to set. It's almost technically impossible under sort of contemporary imaginable circumstances. Most people sit much closer to 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 the US military end, but there are quite a few people who want to have an idea that the system has to do something uh, more than just identify, select and engage targets. It has to perhaps learn from its experiences to have some ability to to make future decisions on the basis of past decisions uh, and to have some kind of higher level of autonomy than just that really basic level. Those all create kind of ethical issues. So autonomy is an ethical debate as you you, know, you and your listeners will will well understand then what's what counts as being autonomous is a is a deeply philosophically contested notion and the idea that autonomous entities are accountable in some way is central to a lot of the debates about about autonomous weapon systems because trying to hold a machine accountable really doesn't make a whole lot of sense and then the other part that's potentially contestable is the system notion. We might use artificial intelligence in military systems in lots of ways. Uh, and the, the focus of most of the debate is upon systems that actually would engage targets, especially human targets. But or artificial intelligence can play a whole host of, of roles in a much bigger military system. They might provide intelligence analysis, for example. They might select targets but leave the final engagement decisions to, to human operators and whether or not those are still autonomous weapons is something which uh, some people would argue they are again we see this in some of the intergovernmental debates would want to rule out for, for some governments it's not an autonomous weapon system if it doesn't actually fire the weapon 
I, I think that many of our listeners may be uh, clear about the implications of allowing autonomous weapons to make decisions about, for example, who will live or who will die. I wonder if you could recap for us a little bit of that debate around that word autonomous, though, because that seems like a really fraught term. And I'm not sure I understand fully exactly what the fraught nature of that term is. Yeah, it is a really broad term and it's a really fraught debate. And it's in the initial stages of the debate about autonomous weapons, then trying to define them on the basis of a, of, a, of autonomy was was really widely discussed. And it's a, it's an area where quite a lot of the, the regulatory debate in practice has moved away from because there's a, a recognition that agreeing on what what is autonomy is just not going to be attainable. But I suppose a kind of analogy I'd, I'd raise is, is that autonomy can be most usefully thought about in terms of context. That's, I think, how most of us think about it. And the analogy is a stretched one, but it, it sort of illustrates the point fairly well. If we think about human autonomy, then we'll often grant people the, the right to do things on the basis of their age. You know, lots of states have rules about uh, about how old you are before you'll say criminally accountable, or you can buy alcohol, drive cars, get married, have sex, all those kinds of things. But if you ask somebody, you know, at, at what age is it appropriate for a child to walk to school on their own, then the answer always comes back, well, that depends. It depends on the context. Um, you know, how many roads have they got to cross? How far is it? What's the neighbourhood like? And all those kinds of questions. And autonomy and weapon systems and the debates about the ethics of autonomy and weapon systems, I think, are really best thought about in context. If you're operating in an environment, say, on, say at sea, where you're really, really unlikely to come across civilian populations then you might be much happier to allow a weapon system to make life or death decisions about human beings than if you're operating in the middle of a you know, dense urban environment uh, where there are lots of civilians and where the enemy's combatants may be hiding amongst those civilians uh, or dressed as those civilians, then that context is a really much more difficult one. So autonomy, I think, is best thought of in contextual terms rather than trying to have an absolute definition, at least, at least in this arena. And I think we can all understand, or at least glimpse some of the challenges and some of the ways in which the second case that you mentioned, right, civilians uh, among people who might be dangerous or combatants might be more fraught than the other example, the sea example. But can you share a little bit about how you see the stakes of that difference? What are the stakes of releasing an autonomous weapon in the context of a military combat in a civilian dense space versus the at sea space? Yeah, the stakes are really high. The stakes are life and death. So I guess there are two main issues that tend to crop up here. So one is one is a kind of really basic in principle philosophical debate about whether it's ever, ever morally permissible to allow machines to kill human beings. Um, so we often use concepts such as notions of dignity here. There's a, a particularly within international law, the idea of dignity is quite, quite well established. And it's, it's a, a reference point that a number of international legal critics of autonomous weapons tend to refer to. But it's at root, it's a, it's a really simple idea that there's something just fundamentally morally objectionable to the idea of a machine killing people. So that's one, one line of objection is that if you're in that environment, particularly a, a complex urban environment where you've got lots of civilians present and a machine is going to make a decision about who lives or dies, then that's morally objectionable, potentially even if it's killing people who might be permissible targets, but especially if it's going to it's going to bring, potentially kill people who aren't. And there will be accidents. You know, one of the things that we know about complex technologies is that there are things called normal accidents, that stuff goes wrong. You know, it's foreseeable that it will go wrong, but it's not foreseeable when or how it will go wrong, but it will happen. So that's one set of objections. The other most well-developed set of objections is around the, the issue of accountability and what's sometimes called the accountability gap. 
that if you have a machine that makes these kinds of decisions and which kills people, and perhaps especially if it kills people that are, are not allowed to be killed, then there's a real concern about who you hold accountable for those deaths, given that holding the machine accountable makes no makes no sense. Then who would be in the line for, for being, for being you know, hauled up in front of a court or whatever other kind of accountability mechanism uh, we might deploy? And there are you know, real worries about the possibility of there being an accountability gap you know, as as you're talking, I'm reminded of another conversation I had in the context of this podcast with a, a scholar named Nassim Parvin, and she works on autonomous vehicles. And she has argued that we should call autonomous vehicles, not autonomous vehicles or self-driving, car, uh, self-driving cars, but rather killing machines. Are there similarities between the debates in the autonomous vehicle space about the ways in which these machines, which can be deadly, oftentimes are programmed in ways that are inequitable to potentially target or at least know not hit people of different, for example, racial backgrounds inequitably. Are there similarities between killing machines as in the way that uh, Dr. Parvin talked about it in autonomous vehicles and the way that you're talking about autonomous weapons? Or are we dealing with two very different technologies and two different playing fields? I think there are similarities. And you sometimes see that in some of the literature that people will look at, for example, how it is that the debates have evolved around what happens when autonomous autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars are involved in accidents that kill people, or where we see situations in which you know, a traffic situation emerges where where an autonomous car makes the decision as do I hit the oncoming vehicle or do I divert onto the pavement and hit the bus queue or whatever it might be. So there are similarities. And I think that there have even been some suggestions about potential crossovers as to how accountability could work there. So um, uh, Rebecca Krutoff, for example, has suggested a notion of of using tort law, which you might well use in relation to self-driving cars, in relation to autonomous weapons. At the moment, that legal environment doesn't really exist in relation to weapon systems. You can't sue the manufacturer for the for the harm that their weapon system caused on, on the basis of tort law. So that's a suggestion that has, has appeared, and there are parallels with self-driving cars. Yeah, um, it's an area where the technologies may even overlap to some extent. It's one of the things about autonomous weapon systems, which is often often stressed, is that the technological innovations, particularly in artificial intelligence, are just as likely, in fact, probably more likely to come out of civilian technology development than they are to come out of some, you know, secret military lab where this is all they do. Almost all of the the, the, the major players involved in this are, are well aware that commercial artificial intelligence and other innovations are going to be crucial to these systems in the future. Let's talk about one particular autonomous weapon technology, lethal autonomous weapon systems or laws. What are laws? Here again, there's the issue of definition crops up in the debate. So mostly what we have in mind here for for lethal autonomous weapon systems, and it's a term which is used in the the intergovernmental talks that take place in in Geneva under the auspices of the the UN's Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons. And the main thing about them is that they would be systems that kill people. So they are the lethal bit is, is important here. We have a number of systems already in existence, and they've been in existence for 40 years in some cases, which can identify, select and engage targets without human intervention. But they're used for shooting down things like incoming missiles or artillery shells or or rockets or whatever it might be. They don't target human beings as yet. And very few people are particularly worried by those. But the lethal bit that this would be a system which targets human beings is the, the key the key distinguishing feature. Again, that's where this this question of is there something fundamentally morally objectionable here tends to crop up um, most with most power and effect. What's envisaged is is really pieces of technology which would be largely independent. You know what what people think about is you know, to borrow a phrase from the popular the popular discourse around this. They think about killer robots. 
the various sci-fi references are all easily spotted and, and routinely deployed. Um, but they tend to think of yeah, discrete technological pieces of equipment which would appear on battlefields and which would select, you know, identify, select and engage targets without further human intervention. They might be part of teams with human beings. They may have to work alongside human soldiers and they would be part of some kind of human chain of command, but they would have that lethal function. How new are autonomous weapons? I mean, when, when I think about autonomous weapons, sure, you know, I think about the science fiction envisioning of a kind of autonomous weapon uh, in a futuristic sense. But then I start to think about, well, you know, a cannon and a cannonball is pretty uh, autonomous too. Sure, you have to have a human being initiate the process, but then the targets can be far distanced from the person who is shooting that cannon. Much of the process, once ignited by the person, then becomes autonomous. And so, a lot of the moral questions that still seem to come up are autonomous weapons, or at least the laws kind of autonomous weapon systems that you're talking about, something fundamentally new, or are they just kind of a difference of degree? On the whole, they're a difference of degree. The autonomous weapon systems of the, the sort I've mentioned, which, for example, if you're on a warship and there are incoming anti-ship missiles, if you've got they move too fast for human few human beings to really shoot them down very effectively. So computer-controlled systems will look to target and shoot those down. And they've been doing that for, for 40 years. Systems, things like phalanx, have been around for that kind of period of time. So the, the, the involvement of computers tends to be central to the definition here. We tend to have a really strong idea that these are, are computer-controlled in some way, rather than, say, something as something like a cannonball, that where you just you know, load it in and light the fuse um, and, and off it goes and there's nothing much you can do you you can do about it or it can do about it but other systems you know, cruise missiles particularly those that have followed the terrain you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember the the, the war in over uh, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in back in the back in the early 1990s then at the time really striking image of missiles you know, flying down streets in Baghdad turning left at the traffic lights and you know, then right at the next crossroads and, and those kinds of things then they've been around in that sense for quite a for quite a long time the area where where people are most concerned is is the development of potential artificial intelligence here and the sense that the systems would be operating outside of very narrowly defined parameters such as shooting down incoming missiles or following terrain in, in the most efficient way to reach a predetermined target that a human being has set um, and where those targets that people that the systems might be engaging are are human beings so we don't really have anything that does that at present these systems aren't deployed but we do have some important precursors so uh, for instance things like drones which are, are often seen as a potential precursor technology if you can increase the level of artificial intelligence in relation to drones then you might get close to systems which could meet the requirement of being a lethal autonomous weapon system fairly quickly maybe this is a good time to talk about mhc or meaningful human control what is meaningful human control and why is meaningful human control an ethical concept that people seem to take really seriously when considering the ethics of war. Yeah, so with the with the kind of failure of the the debate to to identify autonomous weapon systems on the basis of autonomy, then meaningful human control has has emerged as a central debate in a lot of the, the regulatory discussions we see in places like Geneva. And there's a, a powerful group of mostly non-governmental organizations, but but backed by a considerable number of states as well, who who want to try to create a regulatory basis uh, for autonomous weapon systems that would put meaningful human control at its heart. 
And here the, the idea of accountability is, is often crucial. So what they have in mind is, is a sense that there must be a human being who takes the decisions about when the system can engage human targets. So we, we have an idea often called you know, in the loop, that the human being must be in the loop. It must be a human being who makes the decision to engage. Some people will push that a little further and say we must have what's sometimes called on the loop human beings. There must be human beings who are actively engaged in monitoring the performance of a, of a weapon system and who have the ability to turn it off, essentially, if it's seen to be malfunctioning or to be not achieving the parameters and the, the goals for a mission that human beings have set. So that level of human involvement that meets the requirement to be meaningful is a is one of the topics of debate here. But at, at the heart of this is an idea that we must be able to hold human, must have a human being involved in a way that enables us to hold that human being to account for what the system does. I'm kind of fascinated by this term, meaningful human control, because there's kind of two ways that you can read it. There's two ways that you seem to read it. The first is the idea that meaningful corresponds to and modifies that word control. But the second part is that that word meaningful corresponds to and modifies the word human, meaning that sure, the control has to be meaningful, but also uh, it calls into question, what is a meaningful human? Who is a meaningful human? Can you talk a little bit about that idea of the meaningful human that lies at the core of that idea, meaningful human control? What what about that term is contested or problematic for you? You're right. The, the meaningful modifies the control in, in practically all of the discussions about this. And, and there are various formulations. Meaningful human control is the kind of most common, but there are a number of different ways of of framing that idea. For me, I think, as, as you said, the idea is that the meaningful actually relates to the notion of human as well. Um, and that who who is a meaningful human in this debate is something which is actually politically cast and it's politically framed. And it re- relates to a really pretty narrow account of, of who, is a, who is a human. So almost all of the discussions that, that we see, certainly in the policy arena, but in the overwhelming majority of the academic literature as well, takes, takes as its reference point a human being that meets a kind of classic Western liberal rights holding subject as the, the, the centerpiece of politics. And that it's the idea of that rational rights holding liberal individual who, who constitutes the meaningful human. I'm thinking about this now in the larger, bigger picture, which is the ethics of, of war itself. Of course, the idea of meaningful control is central to the question of autonomous uh, weapons and the ethics of autonomous weapons, but also the idea of meaningful human is a core ethical question in terms of thinking about war, making war, which is a procedure about determining who will live or who will die and what kind of power states have to control other populations and to control the kind of ge- state of geopolitical affairs by making decisions decisions about authorizing or justifying who will live or who will die. And so I guess the bigger picture question I have is that I'm curious whether the ethical questions that come up with autonomous weapons are new ethical questions emergent with this particular kind of technology or this new technological capability in war, or are the ethical problems that we see emerging with autonomous weapons analogous to or simply just older versions of older ethical questions about the nature of war, for example, or the right to life? For me, I think they are primarily versions of existing questions. So yeah, you know, the debate about the ethical basis upon which we can determine who lives and who dies in, in conditions of warfare and what constitutes warfare is a very, you know, it's a very long tradition. If we just think about the, the Western tradition of thinking on this, then we back to you know, the, the worlds of classical Greece and Rome, at least. And there are traditions of thinking about, about this that we can find in, in multi, you know, many of the world's major um, philosophical and ethical traditions. 
some of those are quite quite commonly parallel one another. There are some common questions that spread across those different traditions. But within that Western tradition that underpins most of contemporary international humanitarian law, for instance, then we tend to focus upon two issues. One is discrimination, so identifying who is and who is not a legitimate target and discriminating between those in the conduct of military operations, so only killing combatants, for example, and avoiding killing civilians. And the idea of proportionality, which is the sort of level of force that is that is permissible. A classic example of that is the debate over, say, nuclear weapons and the idea of, of extraordinarily high levels of casualties as a, as a way of achieving military objectives. So autonomous weapons, to some extent, pose versions of those of those questions. And the discrimination one has been really, really central to debate because it raises this question of when or if you have a you have an autonomous weapon system, which is is perceived to to go wrong, to kill civilians and what the threshold would be. So for, for some people, the argument is that if you have an autonomous weapon system that is just a bit better than human beings are at making those decisions. It's just a bit better at consistently discriminating between combatants and non-combatants than a human being is, then you should use it because it will reduce the level of civilian casualties. Others want to set the bar much higher and say, you know, no, we need something which is pretty close to perfection here before we should be willing to, to engage with this kind of technology. So that's one example of where a really old question is brought up to date, bang up to date in, in this particular context. Where we get novelties is around the idea of, of potential accountability gaps, for example. We've never really had weapon systems before in which the possibility that somebody could say, you know, I didn't do it, the machine did it, would be permissible or, or, or admissible. And I think one of the concerns that some people have, and, and perhaps here's another kind of analogy with, with familiar technologies, if you were to have an autonomous weapon system, which was generally pretty good at what it did, but went wrong, and it will go wrong, then would you be able to kind of mount a defence that for, for the, say, the commanding officer who had authorised the use of that system, for, for them to say, well, you know, it's never done this before. It's, it's always made these decisions correctly in the past. We had no real reason to expect why it would have gone wrong now. It's not doing anything it hasn't done before. There's nothing unique or particularly challenging or difficult about this set of circumstances, but something's gone wrong. But it's not my fault. In the way in which you know human beings will defer to technology, there's a reasonably well-established problem that human beings defer to technology, particularly when technology gets it right most of the time. You could well find yourself in a situation where military commanders, perhaps with limited understanding of the systems they're using, because they will be extremely complicated, find themselves in a position whereby the system goes wrong, but they don't feel that they can be held to account. And we may feel that they can't be held to account because on the whole, the system had got it right in the past. The analogy that's sometimes drawn is, you know, it's a little bit like when you follow the sat-nav in the car, and 90% of the time it takes you where you want to go in a reasonably sensible way. And sometimes people do some incredibly dumb things because they've followed the sat-nav, you know. It told me to go the wrong way down that one-way street, or it told me to that there was a road there and there isn't. You know, people have driven heavy goods vehicles down very narrow country lanes in the UK and wedged them, literally wedged them between walls because I was following the sat-nav. Yeah, this is fascinating to me. You know, I think about the principle here at stake, which seems something like the principle of, of justice. War is in many ways, or at least has been historicized and mythologized in many contexts as a principle or an outcome of justice or injustice. And injustice, one of the things that we care about, I think, is somebody being able to rationalize the process by which they came to their outcome of justice, which is judgment. So for example, when you think about like the legal context, 
contexts and the increasing proposals to use AI in reasoning processes in the justice system, a lot of the objection to that is that maybe the even if the AI can do a better job of calculating the data, and even though judges like AI similarly have biases, the AI is in many ways a black box. It would never be able to explain its process of reasoning. The same thing seems to be true here in the way that you're talking about lethal uh, autonomous weapon systems, insofar as one of the things we seem to at least care about in this arena of justice called war is the judgment of the people who are waging it and their ability or our ability to call on them and demand an explanation for the outcomes of uh, war, oftentimes uh, the biopower of, of killing or making decisions about killing and letting die. So is this kind of a philosophical principle here, this idea of judgment or being able to interrogate or to have some insight into the process by which somebody allotted their principle of, of justice um, in the context of a justice-based arena of war? Is that what's going on? I, th I think rationalize is a really useful word here because yeah, the, because the standard of rationality that, that, that we tend to use in this is a very particular one. So international humanitarian law is the major legal tradition that we draw upon, and which is, is central to the regulatory debates. The, the UN Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons you know, had its review conference finished about two, three weeks ago now. The group of governmental experts on autonomous weapons uh, presented a report to that. Um, and the absolute central focus of that is the ability or otherwise of these systems to comply with international humanitarian law. And it talks, you know, it has a very clear sense of what that rationalization, what that rationalization looks like and the standards against which, which we reach a judgment. And that rationalization notion and that very particular account of what rationality is draws almost exclusively upon a very particular Western philosophical tradition. And it, it puts at its heart the idea of a rational decision-making individual that is that is a very specific account of, of of that individual that comes back to this idea of a meaningful human that we've we've talked about. The rationalization argument, can we rationalize the decisions the machine took against an appropriate standard, draws upon an idealized account of what human rationality would look like. But it's a very it's a very Western, it's a very masculine, it's a very white account of, of that rationality and of that rationalization. And that's one of the things which I think is really problematic about the way the, the debate has developed is that it, it draws upon a, con a concept of a, of a meaningful human whose standards and judgments will provide the basis for our assessments that is almost entirely abstract and that is deeply removed from the experience of violence that a large number of, the you know, large number of people in the world have, 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 under have undergone and almost completely ignores the, the kinds of reference points that they may use for developing ethical assessments of military technologies. Maybe this is a good point to ask the question, who is leading this debate? Who is the leadership and what's the state of the current leadership uh, and tradition that's governing lethal autonomous weapon systems? Is it centralized? Are there groups of people who are making this decision? Who gets to have a stake or who gets to have a say in the way that these decisions about laws get made? Laws about laws, I guess I should say. What does that look like? Um, in, in some ways, it's quite a simple sort of system. So as with most military technologies, nation states and their governments want to retain maximum possible control over the kinds of military options that they have available. So governments are firmly in the driving seat for, for these sorts of things. But having said that, then there's a there's a very active international non-governmental organization community, coalitions of NGOs who are mostly also organized around the idea of trying to create either a ban on lethal autonomous weapon systems or at least to to move the current discussions in the United Nations conventions through towards developing some kind of 
regulatory treaty, so some kind of international law-based regulatory system for thinking about autonomous weapons. In terms of the technology itself, then you know the leading powers are the ones you'd probably expect. So it's it's the United States, Russia, China, Israel, to a lesser extent, a country like the United Kingdom. But it's the it's the existing major military powers, some of whom are pouring you know, very substantial amounts of money into these sorts of technologies, and all of whom see substantial potential military advantages in development of artificial intelligence. And on the whole, those leading states are trying their best to stop the development of things like, say, an international treaty um, that would that would govern lethal autonomous weapon systems. The US position at the recent uh, UN conventional, certain conventional weapons talks was that there could be a a kind of non-binding code of practice developed amongst the amongst the, techno- the technological leaders here. The UK's position has tended to be that existing international humanitarian law is entirely adequate. We just we don't need anything else than, than what we already have. China put forward a, a definition of, of autonomous weapon systems two three years years or so ago, which described a system that nobody would ever produce, which would you know, nobody would ever deploy. You know, it required that the system couldn't be switched off. It required that the system couldn't discriminate between combatants and non-combatants for it to be a for it to be a lethal autonomous weapon system. So it was it was kind of trying to define the the, the debate out of existence. And what's your take? What do you think about the state of affairs? Are you happy with the state of the debate and the state of laws about laws? Uh, no, um, no. I mean, it's a, it's a, the outcomes of, of the, the UN convention meeting last uh, review conference last, last month were, were pretty seriously depressing. Any efforts to try to put any regulatory flesh on on the bones were were effectively ruled out. The, the principle at the, the UN Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons is that you need consensus. So this does give does give states a very easy way to, to create vetoes. So I think that the the current state of the regulatory environment is is pretty horrible. And I'm also fairly fairly pessimistic about the chances of it getting a whole lot better if the if the debate carries on being framed in in the way that it is at present. And as I understand it, one of the things that you're critical of is the centralization of that debate. You argue, as I understand it, that we need to decentralize the current leadership and the tradition of laws. What is the current centralized state of the leadership and the tradition of laws? And how did we arrive at this kind of centralized state of things? What would decentralization, which I, as I understand it, you you argue for, what would that look like? Yeah, so I, I think the, the, the centralization is maybe not just to do with, with the, the sort of technicalities of what would a treaty look like or what law, international law should apply or, or how could it be implemented. But it's, it's that there's, a, there's become a very a singular kind of narrative about the reasons why lethal autonomous weapons systems are attractive or potentially attractive to states why money is being being poured into this and I, I think that that singular account probably has two major kinds of components so that so the first is that what what in, what international relations scholars often call the security dilemma that in a world of where sovereign states are the main actors and where they reserve the right to self-defense and the use of, of systematic organized violence uh, as warfare to themselves then one of the things you can be really worried about is technological innovations by your opponents. The security dilemma holds this idea that you know, whilst your opponents may well say this is a purely defensive uh, move, we have we have no hostile intention towards any of our neighbours. If you're one of those neighbours, it can be pretty difficult to take that take that on trust. You may take it on trust at the moment, but you might be worried about the situation changing in future. Uh, and you may therefore, you know, logically take steps to, towards thinking, OK, how do we counter this? Um, how do we acquire this system ourselves, perhaps? Or how do we develop effective countermeasures to these kinds of systems? 
And these sorts of notions of security dilemmas are really central to understanding phenomena like arms racing. And there are lots of historical examples of arms buildups that are frequently described in terms of these sorts of security dilemmas. The, the naval race between Britain and Germany in the, the run-up to World War One is often seen as a really clear example. Um, US-Soviet nuclear weaponry acquisitions uh, and, and technological innovations is, is another really commonplace one. So that security dilemma notion has become really hardwired into a lot of the debate about autonomous weapons. You see it certainly in the US and and, and elsewhere, feeling that if the Russians and the Chinese are pursuing these kinds of technologies, then we have to as well. They may not succeed, you know, they may be, they may not work. Uh, this this may not go anywhere very much, but if it does, we can't possibly afford not to be not to be up there with the leaders because it just threatens our security too much. So that's that's one kind of way in which the narratives become really centralised. And the second, I think, is also around the idea of the ubiquity and inescapability of artificial intelligence, and that artificial intelligence in a whole host of civilian arenas is going to be transformative of our lives. It already is transforming our lives in a number of ways, and that. That process driven by human inquisitiveness and ingenuity and also driven by capital and capitalism uh, is also a kind of unbreakable cycle. That artificial intelligence is too interesting a thing for humans to resist pursuing it and it's going to make too many people too much money for it not to be pursued. Look at the, the way in which leading artificial intelligence corporations, the big tech corporations have become absolutely massively important to the way that the world economy is functioning and certainly to how investment functions then we can't escape AI. And AI will cross over. There, there are too many useful military applications for it, for this not to happen. So I think there's, those are two ways in which there's become a really centralised narrative about the security dilemma on the one hand, and the, the inescapability of artificial intelligence as central to uh, the future of, of national and global economies for this not to happen. I'm really interested in this idea of centralization. Maybe let me set up the the question that I want to ask with some background that I have had in my mind recently. I just spent a couple of weeks over in an archive looking at the Nuremberg Tribunal, which of course is a pivotal moment in the 20th century that convenes and really solidifies a global kind of international center for legal assessment of things like, you know, caring about what meaningful humans are and who should live and who should die. And also a meaningful way of centralizing and organizing who gets to wage war under what circumstances. And just to give listeners a little bit of background, Nuremberg in the wake of World War II is in many ways a revisiting of the international treaties of the League of Nations established after World War I, in which the question of who gets to wage war and whether or not aggressive war is is acceptable in the context of an international organized community is a question that gets solidified after World War II when aggressive war is effectively made illegal. And the outcome of this is really a solidified way of thinking about the international community as a community specifically organized to police and stop the waging of aggressive war and to penalize or to criminalize or to create a system of law enforcement for that ban on aggressive war. Now, the centralization of that is really pivotal, I think, for the development of the 20th century. And part of what we're thinking about in the 21st century as a kind of international global community. So I'm really interested in your proposal that we should decentralize things in the context of reconfiguring not only the governance of legal autonomous weapon systems, but also the idea of decentralizing this kind of internationally centered 
community of organizing and preventing international uh, aggression in the context of banning war. And now I guess I'm thinking about the proposal to decentralize the governance of war technologies and wondering whether or not we need to decentralize the laws of governing war, whether the 20th century legacy of this international community holds up in the age of kind of global connected international communities, not organized primarily through the nation, but rather organized through things like corporations or organized through a glowing global interconnectedness through tech, through military engagement, and so many other factors that we're talking about in the 21st century that's really reorganizing that term, I think, international. So when we're talking about decentralizing laws, lethal autonomous weapon systems, are we talking uh, about decentralizing the international community's organization of itself? Or are we talking about something fundamentally different? What's your take? I, I think it's, for, for me, I think it's something different. So I mean, your mention of Nuremberg is really, really important and really, really interesting here, because one of the things that the, those Nuremberg tribunals did, and also the war crimes tribunals that took place in, in, in Tokyo, after the defeat of Japan at the end of World War II was was to place at the at the heart of our discussions notions of accountability. So, you know, famously one of the things that Nuremberg did was to rule out the idea that the obedience to superior orders could provide a justification for the commission of war crimes or crimes against humanity, for instance. You could no longer rely upon the idea that I was only obeying orders. So that's also really important to how international humanitarian law around questions of accountability that are that are central to a lot of the lethal autonomous weapons uh, debates takes as a reference point Nuremberg and post-Nuremberg and the, de- the debates about how you want to implement these things has been really crucial there. The second part of decentralization, or perhaps this talks particularly to decentralization, is that the, the Nuremberg tribunals and, and that account of international humanitarian law that's grown in a post-Nuremberg world has a particular account of of the war that is its central that is its central reference point, and that's world you know, that's World War Two, and the idea of this as being a, a war by democracies plus Soviet Russia under Joseph Stalin, which is nothing like a democracy, of course, but a, a war essentially against against the evil of Nazism and of fascism more generally, and that that's the form of war, an aggressive war fought by fascist states that provides the kind of paradigm that World War Two was the, the the just war, the good war. And one of the things that it, it did was to was in some ways to help to remove from our collective experience and our collective reference points a whole bunch of other wars, particularly those fought in the first part of the uh, of the twentieth century, and certainly those fought in the latter half of the nineteenth century, which were wars of imperialism, you know, which are by far the more common, uh, perhaps sort of European experience, are wars of imperialism. It helps to reinforce the sense that a particular experience, that experience of World War II and that Western experience, that that Western European, North American experience of World War II provides us with our reference points. So one of the decentralizations I think I'm most interested in, and I think it'd be really useful for autonomous weapon systems for thinking about their regulation, is to ask questions of those who have experienced the effects of some of these precursor technologies, things like drones what their experience of of military technology is, what their reference points are, what their moral understandings of how technology contributes to warfare have been, and to try to find ways of incorporating that into our regulatory debates. So to to challenge this this hyper-rational, typically highly idealised or abstract, um, but overwhelmingly kind of white, Western, male, ideal type of, of the rational actor, and to, to bring in to those discussions, to decentralize those discussions by bringing in the experiences of people from outside of that perspective and who draw upon different historical understandings and experiences of, of their reference point war, as it were, as not being 
the war of good against evil, the, the just war of World War II, the defeat of Nazism and fascism, and to, to see how they think about military technology and innovations such as autonomous weapon systems, because those voices are absolutely silent at present. There's, there's no space in contemporary regulatory debate for those perspectives to, to really be present. And one of the things that's often really interesting is that even the governments of uh, states, non-Western states, for example, through organisations such as the Non-Aligned Movement, which have been really active in, in the Geneva negotiations about autonomous weapon systems, they still present their arguments very firmly within the kind of classic perspective and framework of, of international humanitarian law. I mean, now you've got me really thinking because one of the things that I've become increasingly interested in is the utopian vision post-Nuremberg of the kind of international governance centered on the idea of human rights on the one hand, and that's the intellectual genealogy for thinking about uh, autonomous weapons that you're talking about here. But of course, the other intellectual genealogy that goes into the creation of autonomous weapons is the intellectual genealogy of technology, particularly Silicon Valley and the utopian ideals of technologists. So how does perhaps the background or thinking about Silicon Valley, the technologists who are governing the creation of uh, the technologies that go into creating autonomous weapons, animating some of the decisions or some of the concepts or some of the ways of thinking about autonomous weapons uh, and whether or not we want to celebrate that kind of autonomy or perhaps be more cautious about it? Yeah, I think there are, there are optimists out there. There are certainly those who want to suggest that the development of autonomous weapon systems could save humanity from itself, that you know, we could be techno-optimists and make an argument that, for example, the more you involve artificial intelligence in your, in your decision-making processes, uh, then the, the less likely you are to get some of the catastrophic mistakes that are often seen as lying behind, behind wars in the past, that you will have a better matrix of information about potential outcomes of different courses of political action that could help steer decision makers away from making some stupid decisions, because sometimes we make some, you know, we make some pretty stupid decisions about, about the use of military force. Some of those are, are really well understood and, and, and very heavily studied, thinking here of, say, the behind the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, for example, in sort of 1962 as a sort of famous mistake, something that went disastrously wrong. Numerous instances of this. So for some people, the, the use of artificial intelligence within our decision making processes around even really serious decisions around the use, you know, the initiation of war could potentially save us from disastrous mistakes. For others, of course, the fear is that one of the other great advantages that artificial intelligence appears to hold out is speed. You know, and, and in military circles, speed really matters. There's a, a really deeply, again, deeply established idea within uh, most Western military thinking that, that all other things being equal, speed wins. Um, I can think of General Mattis, the, the you know, former senior US military commander, a prominent figure in the, the, the last US administration, wrote exactly that, speed wins. So if you can make better decisions faster, the chances are you will come out on top. So one sense of technological optimism can be that it might save us from making mistakes, getting into wars we should never have got into in the first place, helping our decision makers make better decisions. And there's a flip side to that. The other one is that you'll, you'll have systems which will become so precise, uh, so able to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants that you would be able to use military force with a, you know, and to borrow the very familiar sorts of analogies here, with a level of surgical precision that is that is unimaginable at present. I forget who it was who wrote this, but there was one of the technological optimists who said that the ideal lethal autonomous weapon system would would simply walk up to the enemy, take the rifle out of their hands, saw it in half, hand it back to them, tell them to have a nice day, 
And what do you think? Do you think that that's on? Is that something that makes you optimistic? No, not in the slightest. Um, I think it's you know, it's much more likely that the kinds of autonomous weapon systems that would that are envisageable that we can imagine coming down the line would never get anywhere near that kind of level of of, uh, of, of ability. Uh, and and again, the speed problem potential, the speed issue potentially presents itself. That the ability to to concentrate greater levels of, of firepower at crucial points at high speed is is a tendency which we can see in in military operational and and tactical thinking and in and in doctrine for the last couple of hundred years um, and certainly it's it's deeply embedded uh, in in the western way of warfare uh, in the post 1945 period that uh, and artificial intelligence seems to offer potential advantages in that regard. So one of the ways in which artificial intelligence is already being used in uh, in military decision making is to try to help deal with with some of the problems to do with analysing and assessing huge quantities of intelligence data. To, again, to, to, to use a familiar phrase that you can find yourself kind of drowning in data and swimming in sensors, just overwhelmed by the information that is possible to collect about one's potential enemies and artificial intelligence offers a way to process that data at a speed that no human team could ever could ever get close to to matching you know i think that that narrative about the security dilemma the connected narrative about about military success being linked strongly to speed uh, about the idea of how to maximize and concentrate firepower and military efforts at critical moments uh, as fast as you can all point towards the the development of artificial intelligence within military systems and potentially lethal autonomous weapon systems that would be nothing like the kind of that 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 techno optimist friendly robot that walks up to its enemies and saws their rifles in half and hands them back to them. I want to push on that a little bit more. You talk about, and I'm going to quote you here, the current state of regulatory debate about lethal autonomous weapons systems looks to be increasingly locked into a twofold choice from three desirable criteria, effective, deployable, accountable. Pick two. Why is the debate locked into that kind of twofold choice? How did we get to the place where the debate is locked into choosing two out of three massively important uh, pieces of criteria in an emerging lethal autonomous weapon system technology? Yeah, I think I think this comes back to those deeply embedded narratives about international politics and, and and about capitalist development that I've mentioned, and also about about war and the role of speed within war. That these are, if not quite articles of faith, then things that are, are almost never questioned in a systematic way within the contemporary regulatory discussions that you see in Geneva or that you you, you see in most of the most of the academic literature on this on this topic either. So you could have a system which would be which would be effective, so militarily effective, would potentially, you, know, you could potentially offer some kind of transformatory benefit on the battlefield. Uh, and for it to be, to, for it to, to do that, it would have to work really fast. For, for a system that was effective and deployable, it would have to work at a speed that would offer you major military advantages over your enemies. And that means you're likely to lose accountability because accountability inf- means involving human beings and, account- and human beings are slow and cumbersome compared potentially to machine speed systems. Or you could have a system that might be militarily effective that could offer a major advantage on the battlefield. And it would be you could have one that was accountable, but you'd never deploy it because you've just lost its principal advantage by making it accountable because having human beings involved in it will slow it down too much. And you could have a system which was deployable and accountable, but it's not going to be effective. It's not going to offer major military advantages over anything that we already have. Um, so that's the kind of sense in which an account of, of the security dilemma as, as meaning that the attraction of these systems lies in both the necessity of ensuring we don't lag behind our major peer competitors uh, and don't open ourselves to, to serious security risks. The idea of how we conduct war 
which places a, a, a heavy emphasis upon upon speed and the idea that these the development of artificial intelligence in the military arena and even into specific weapon systems is is inevitable and unavoidable because of the ubiquity that artificial intelligence uh, will come to have in our world creates this this two from three choice it's if you if you if you accept those three reference points it seems to me you're really struggling to avoid that that two from three so I take away from your point of view that what we're facing is an inevitable progression of technologies uh, like autonomous weapons, uh, along with a growing unlikelihood to halt the technological advancements of autonomous weapons uh, definitively, and that we're going to be choosing between these three things, picking two. So if an inevitable progression of these technologies is inevitable, are you worried? <laughs> Which two of these three are people picking? What could go wrong? At the top of the political and military establishments in in the you know, in the US, China, and Russia, then it's effective and deployable, over accountable. I think every time. Um, I, I think that's that's my fear. Perhaps more so in in some of those jurisdictions than others, but I think to a to a lesser or greater extent in all three. And it's really hard to know very much about Russia and China. They don't exactly share this information terribly readily or terribly widely. It, it worries me. And I think that the the, the, the only way out, the only ways out of this are to try to break this sense that, that the security dilemma. The proliferation of artificial intelligence and, and the benefits offered by speed are in some way, you know, baked in material facts about the world over which we have no control. And that's where the opportunities for you know, for non-governmental civil society act, action and activism lie, I think, is in, is in trying to make the arguments about the centrality of certain kinds of political values and of certain kinds of ethical principles to, to what it is to live, a, to live a decent human life that mean that resisting this kind of sense of inevitability or of, of unavoidability can can take place and that i think needs to draw upon a a range of political experiences and and of experiences of of war uh, and a range of ethical perspectives uh, and understandings that is vastly wider than the one that we tend to see present in the debate at, at the moment so in the moments where this is keeping you up at night which i assume it does what does your dystopian distress look like what is the worst case scenario of the deployment of autonomous weapons or lethal autonomous weapon systems as a kind of international reality look like and what should we fear it's really hard to predict what, what these systems could could end up looking like i mean the artificial intelligence has had multiple kinds of people saying you know it's just around artificial particularly more general versions of artificial intelligence just around the corner you know all this kind of stuff in, in the wake of the kind of theranos trial then uh, the idea of you know fake it till you make it is not an unfamiliar notion in terms of uh, in terms of promising the world for, for new technological innovations so one thing that means I, I sleep at night is is the hope that maybe these things won't come to pass as badly as as it could. But on the whole, I am pretty I am pretty pessimistic about this. Unfortunately, I think that I, th- I think the real worry is that human beings will come to accept the inevitability of the abandonment of me of of control over over the use of the use of force in international politics to a significant extent. Not totally. I don't think we'll we'll go that far. At least not in any foreseeable set of circumstances that I can envision. Or or which I'll be around to see. Certainly, you know, if I've got another maybe forty years left, then I, I, I'll <laughs> beyond that, it's perhaps not my problem. But where I think that human beings will take decisions that mean that they they give up control and that we lose track of what what control should should mean because we we become overly concerned with and overly obsessed by an account of of control that that stresses a notion of rationality. Uh, and of utility maximization that is just unattainable by humans. 
we've talked you know throughout this conversation really and certainly you've, you've you've stressed really helpfully the idea that war is an ethical activity and if it becomes a purely technological one then we're lost is there an optimistic forecast in this context if so what does it look like the, op- the most optimistic forecast is that the governments that have been most resistant to the development of some kind of meaningful set of regulatory structures rooted in contemporary international law, but developing and expanding upon that, that their, that their resistance starts to fall away. That the, the efforts by, by non-governmental organisations, by civil society groups within states to force governments that are most resistant to the development of, of regulation come to fruition. And there are, you know, there are a lot of governments in the world that are and the majority of the world's governments are keen on the development of this kind of regulation. You know, we have states which want outright bans. Um, we have states which want some kind of legal treaty basis for the regulation of autonomous weapons. And they make up the majority of the world's governments, um, but they aren't, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the governments of states which are at the forefront of this technology or, or perceive themselves as likely to gain some kind of major security advantage. So a shift in the balance driven by a combination of intergovernmental pressure from the from the majority of the world's governments and through civil society organizations to try to transform this debate to break that sense of some kind of past dependency is the optimistic outcome. I think we probably have time for one last question. And I want to spend that last question on going back to uh, this idea of the meaningful human, which is at the heart, as we've talked about, of meaningful human control, and which seems like a neutral term. Uh, and of course, as we've talked about, is actually not neutral. And for you, as I understand it, particularly in your article on laws and meaningful human control, that term meaningful human bears a really impoverished conception of that idea of the human. So I'd like to further drill down a little bit on what you think we should consider or talk about or complicate when we use that term meaningful human, or maybe even when we use that term human. How do we think about how should we rethink that idea of the human and what makes the human meaningful? I, I think in this in this context, and as as that paper tries to tries to stress that the meaningful human that that is imagined is is a, a deeply impoverished and very narrow conception of what it is to be a human being. And and I think that when thinking about about warfare, when thinking about the experience of contemporary military technologies. We should learn from the people who've been on the receiving end of these things. Overwhelmingly, the people who dominate these debates are either from military forces, which may well which may well deploy these kinds of systems or are looking to develop these systems with the potential to deploy them, or they lead governments of countries where such systems are very unlikely to ever be deployed. You know, it's, it's incredibly unlikely I will find myself outside my university in Durham in northeast England faced with a lethal autonomous weapon system. I've, I've lived a life which is full of all sorts of privileges based upon gender, socioeconomic status, race, citizenship. You know, I won the lottery when I was born. So let's talk to, hear from, take seriously, learn from the people who have experienced precursor technologies such as, such as drones. Let's find out what it's like to be on the receiving ends of these kinds of technologies, what kinds of ethical perspectives that brings, what kinds of lessons that can, we can learn from, from that experience, and have an understanding of what it is to be a human which doesn't rely upon some kind of abstract, hyper-rational account of the liberal rights-holding sovereign subject that, that underpins so much of the Western philosophical tradition that's that's become central to our debates about this topic. Let's hear from people of colour, let's hear from women, let's hear from, from uh, people outside of a, a philosophical tradition that, that, that feeds into a, to a Western liberalism. And let's hear from Muslims, from Buddhists, from Hindus, from a whole host of the world's major religious groups 
about what it is they think about this technology and let's take those voices seriously let's give them the weight the same weight that we give to the to the white male western military chief thank you very much john pleasure